0: Welcome to History Matters, the podcast about history, teaching history, and why it matters. An acclaimed researcher, historian, and educator. He regularly facilitates conversations surrounding the African American historical experience, the topic of race and its present-day implications. He is the founder of History Heals Consulting, LLC, a business devoted to using African American history as a vehicle to aid schools, institutions, and businesses in fostering healthy and inclusive environments. Marcus is a proud husband, father and son who is passionate about his role in uplifting his community and all of humanity. He holds a Master of Arts degree in African American Studies from Morgan State University, and his research primarily focuses on the history of African Americans in the United States. A significant aspect of his research is on the historic plight of African Americans in the field of education throughout Maryland and Howard County. Some of the projects he's been involved with recently include training K through 12 public school educators throughout Maryland and nationwide at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum, the largest African-American museum in Maryland. He's provided a virtual web series numerous times in collaboration with Howard County Public Library Systems on topics ranging from the importance of black history, history of black education in Howard County, and the resilience of blacks in Ellicott City. He has recently served as a guest on the Spotify podcast, Leading Equity, along with others entitled Teacher Talk Community and Bold Black Girls Podcast. Marcus has co-taught the African American Studies Seminar and has provided professional development support and healing spaces for K-12 educators across the country to support their mental health and overall well-being. He is currently serving as a consultant for the Maryland Center for History and Culture of Baltimore, Maryland and the Howard County Center of African American Culture. His mission is to empower, educate, and inspire others through the lens of African American culture and history. Steve and I had a conversation with Marcus over Zoom. All right. Well, welcome, Marcus Nix, and uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Steve and I, in on this episode of the podcast talking about high school history uh, teachers, social studies teachers, and some of the issues they face today. Um, I was hoping maybe to begin with asking you, maybe um, just to kind of briefly tell us about the journey that you've gone through over the past few months. I, I understand that uh, you are uh, leaving the profession of, of teaching uh, high school history. Um, why did you decide to, to leave the profession?
1: Sure. Well, first, let me just say um, I'm delighted Shannon and Steve to be a part of this platform to be able to engage in what I feel is is a very uh, pertinent, very important, very significant conversation where we find ourselves now. Um, So thanks for having me on first and foremost. I really appreciate that. Uh, So I have actually uh, been in the school system Uh, I went into the public school system of Howard County, which is located in a suburb right outside of Baltimore. I came in in 2010, and this past year, uh, around March, is when I decided to make my transition. And I've always enjoyed working with students, parents, fellow colleagues, and staff members. But what I experienced these past two years was something that Really brought a lot to the forefront, and it had me starting to reimagine and rethink the best ways that I could approach educating, teaching, and supporting staff members and students and parents and and all those who really constitute the stakeholders in the education educational uh, systems, uh, especially primarily public school, which is where I've been stationed for the duration of my time. And so, I did seven years middle school, five years high school, and what I what I discovered, you know, I went to the same school. I went I went to elementary and middle school and high school in the same uh, school system that I ended up teaching. But really, what what led me to start to to reconsider things and to transition out was really just the pressing the pressing issues, the challenges, the concerns and how that started to weigh on my own um, psychological, emotional, even physical well-being. And so one of the things that I've uh, realized in in the past couple of years, the pandemic, COVID, and teaching, and amidst all that, there were issues in the school systems leading up until. No school system is perfect. However, I would say, especially the past two years, there's been a lot that has come out to the forefront that has really made not just myself, but many educators all spanning throughout the country is put them in a position where they've had to think and rethink uh, and critically examine where they need to be in order to make their best impact. So, uh, So here I am, and I decided to transition and move on to have a greater impact. And I take the lessons with me that I gained for the duration of time that I was in the public school system of Howard County.
0: So is, uh, is that to say, Marcus, that you feel that COVID and other uh, issues the past couple of years are not necessarily the cause of some of the stress, stressors that you personally and professionally felt, but sort of maybe um, exposed them? Uh, underlying issues that were already there, or did um, COVID and other issues actually cause uh, some of the stresses.
1: Well, I think I think it could be said that COVID was a cause, but I think it was also a factor that exacerbated and magnified many of the issues that were already there. And I'm a historian, you know, one who loves to look at the past, look at history, and see how that shapes the present and contemporary times. So. It's not just COVID, but if you look at, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, on up till now, the political scene, you know, has been very contentious uh, in terms of the political affairs, individuals being in office, the race relations, uh, the the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, Black Lives Matter movement, engaging in a lot of protests and rallies and marches. Uh, you know, you just see um, so many different things that have happened in, in educational systems and in educational institutions, these things spill over and carry into the educational realm. Uh, mental health and how individuals can get the mental health and support they need. And even just recently, Uh, Uvalde, Texas, the school shooting. Well, that is just one of many unfortunate examples of of violence directed and aimed at schools. And I believe, I don't have the data with me, but I believe that this year uh, there were more school shootings this year alone than many previous subsequent years. So when you look at COVID, which is a collective trauma, and having to learn virtually, having to know how how to figure out on the fly how to navigate being virtual, how to reach students, how to reach parents, how to teach and navigate the new technology, and try not to get sick, trying to protect your, your students. You also have a family, and people are losing their lives, and your safety and certainty is is it's not what it used to be. Then you have the contentious racial topics and issues that are taking place. And one of the things that I also have been working and supporting educators with, with the work I do as an educational consultant working with staff, the microaggressions. So, you know, educators are navigating spaces where they might not always feel represented or feel heard from administrators. They might not always feel like they're valued, even in their educational spaces. Uh, There's, I've come to realize Shannon, there's a certain type of mindset and outlook where we're givers, we are fixers, we're nurturers, we're teachers, we're educators. And so it can be very difficult and very challenging to be able to create some boundaries, you know, and to be able to balance out how much we give as uh, as opposed to how much we also try to recharge and rebuild ourselves, and so these are some of the uh, some of the things that have come about that has really shaken up the educational system, but has also once again had a lot of educators and teachers really reflect on: Is this sustainable? And is this a healthy? Uh, path for me to continue on. And, and I've seen uh, many personal colleagues and friends in the school system and even those beyond have to really grapple with hard, challenging decisions um, in order to, to, to just reflect on what they want to do. And then even, you know, the contention behind what to teach, critical race theory or, you know, what you can, books being banned, all of this stuff plays a part and has played a role in terms of the landscape and the scope of the educational system and where educators, administrators, counselors, whomever, where, where they find themselves at.
2: Marcus, so, this is Steve. Uh, your comments just now triggered a, a number of questions. Uh, here at the college, we had, uh, Shannon and I had a close friend, a biologist, who in March of 2020, when we went online, uh, she was not able to deal with that. She had not used Zoom before. She had not. She had never worked online courses before. And she left the profession. And uh, I was shocked by it. I tried to reach her and was not able to. Um, that sounds like um, in high school that COVID is equally as damaging. Is that true?
1: yes. I would say that one of the things that, so when, when, when challenging, highly stressful, traumatic situations occur, we, people respond to, to things differently. So for one person, they could get stressed, they can really get uh, strained, they could get uh, bogged down. But for another person, they may have the ability to be able to navigate through that more effectively, or to be able to work through that, depending on what psychological, what social, emotional resources they're bringing to the table. I can say, just like you mentioned, there were a number of colleagues, you know, we're having our, our, our Google Meets and our virtual meetings, and staff members breaking down in those sessions, or, or such and such has been killed and murdered by the police and their school the next day and staff members feeling as though, why is this not acknowledged? How can we just ignore this and keep pushing and keep going as if this ever happened? Uh, Having to establish healing spaces or affinity groups to actually be able to support educators. So absolutely, you know, all of this stuff is connected.
2: let me just follow up on that with one more thing you mentioned you mentioned uvalde a moment ago sure these school shootings have become uh, rather routine in this country and it occurred to me that as a, a former high school teacher uh you must have thought at times that there is a target not maybe not necessarily on you but on on your institution i'm just curious if um if in your high school, if there is security, if, there, if the doors do lock behind you, if, are there locks on the classroom doors? Uh, are there measures in place to prevent such an uh, such an atrocity?
1: Well, well, I would say the 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 schools that I've the school that I've been assigned to, and I know a number of other schools in the district and in the area. Um, there's you know different drills, whether it's uh, Uh, drills to prepare for for if an intruder comes into the building, Uh, different types of procedures like lockdown procedures, things of that nature. Um, I do know that there are efforts to try to keep uh, doors locked and and, having a system in place where people could have to scan in or or express who they are before they enter into the school. So so there are those uh, parameters on that level. Um, I know that there's been teachers that have that have reached out to me, or not teachers, but parents who they were driving by the school and they saw a police officer, they saw a police car there, and they right. they were concerned and worried. And I let them know, well, that's just a school resource officer. There's a school resource officer or SRO that's assigned to each school, and and even that has become a controversial topic in and of itself. But it just speaks to how parents are definitely on guard and how they're cautious and they're a little bit well in many ways they're concerned understandably so about what's happening in the schools and once again it's when when the uvaldi incidents take place and the other shootings around the country and these schools takes place it's never just about those schools all the other schools and the students and the parents and the educators they also were wondering okay is our school next Is this going to happen to us you know, what's going, you know, what's going to happen with our situation? And so I know there were some colleagues, you know, who had spouses who were married and even those in their families were concerned about, man, I know you love what you do, but is it safe? You know, is how, you know, what, what next? So um, there's a whole lot. And when you speak about the violence, it's not just the guns and it's not just, you know, that type of violence, but we're talking about racial violence We're talking about mental health that is not being addressed and students who are shutting down, they're flipping out a level of fragility uh, is is at an all time high suicide rates, it's a lot. And I think one of the things that I've seen is the shift and the transition from that virtual period to now being back in person. And so how can you provide all of these supports to these students, to these educators, to these administrators and um, that's the question of the day. Hmm. Right.
0: Hmm. Uh, let me chime in a little bit. Uh, that was really interesting listening to you there, Marcus. I, I want to maybe ask a question a little bit more specific to history because we're a history podcast and history sure. is kind of where we're focused on. So given all of what you said so far, um, and this is a concern that I have particularly um with people who, let's face it, a lot of stress, a lot of things that are they're having to face, deciding to leave their institutions. Um, and they're leaving in large numbers, I think, this year. Uh, I, I know uh, a middle school just down the road from us, the one middle school is, is um, gonna lose 20 teachers in the middle school.
1: Wow. And
0: the school that my kids go to, they're ex- they're just so happy that they're only going to lose five. Uh, this is at the elementary school. And there's these stories going around that are just incredibly, <laughs> potentially, how many, how few teachers we're going to have coming in the fall. So my question is, you know, how is this, how are all these things, how are they impacting the way that we teach history and the way that history is being learned by uh, students? Um, you know, is, is, is this a thing? Threat to the way that we traditionally taught in the institutions of high schools in America is that is that model being um, challenged now is 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 there alternative models for us to teach history or or is this kind of maybe more of a short term temporary issue Uh, I'm, i'm really curious. I'm concerned. We don't have a lot of teaching history in America. I I think we should have more. We don't have enough, in my opinion, but I feel like we may be on the cusp of having less. How how is that going to affect teachers and students from the discipline of history?
1: Sure. So outside outside of students and, and educators being safe, I think that it's a wonderful opportunity to explore the complexity and the nuance um, of how we got to this point. And as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, there were events, there were moments in time that got us to where we are. And, and you know this, Shannon, as a historian, we look at causality and look at why circumstances lead to other things, why change happens, why it doesn't. Now I've taught African-American studies and work mostly with the Black African-American student population in my schools, even though I've supported countless of students from all backgrounds and walks of life. So one of the things that I think is important to look at when we speak about the complexity Um, And as we historicize what's happening now, from an African American historical perspective, um, there's always been a a long strain with um, the power struggles over what constitutes legitimate knowledge, what should be taught, what should not be taught, how the past shapes the present, how we grapple with that, um, and that has always been a central concern in education. And so I've had conversations with students, I've presented all this and have done research. You know, when we talk about the policing of ideas, Mm -hmm. the the policing of the circulation ideas, that is something that is not new and foreign to African-Americans in America. You know, when we talk about banned books, when we talk about critical race theory, when we talk about, you know, those, those, anti-Black racist narratives and stereotypes that have been pervasive from higher ed on down to lower levels, it's nothing new. I just a couple weeks ago took a trip down to South Carolina. South Carolina was the first place in the South where there were anti-literacy laws. 1740, Before the Declaration of Independence is signed, and I know we'll soon be at July 4th, and there will be some celebrating, but before then, there were anti-literacy laws against Blacks being able to read and write. It was against the law. Mm-hmm. So so education was criminalized. We have talked about school shootings, and it's not to minimize at all what happened in Uvalde and all of these other places where there were shootings. But between 1866 to 1877, there were over 600 black schools in the south that uh, were that uh, were burned down to the ground due to arson. Mm-hmm. So. This this is a great way to take what's happening now and historicize it, look at the past and say, well, what did those educators under those racially hostile, under those racially oppressive circumstances and conditions, how did they still maintain relationships with their students? How did they go about trying to still pour into their students? How did they support their own needs and their own wellness and their own mental health? It is actually a good book that speaks to this, is by uh, Jarvis Givens, it's called Fugitive Pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Um, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching, and, and Carter G. is the Father of Black History Month, and it speaks to all of the different ways, subversively, that educators had could still um, wield their power and how they still could make a difference amidst such an oppressive uh, circumstance. So once again, um, Shannon, I think that Um, We can look at the past and see that the book bans and the, you know, the laws in place to deny certain aspects of literacy. It's not new Um, and African Americans risked their life being beat, imprisonment, lynching, um, you know, fines, all types of stuff. And, And to be clear, it just wasn't black teachers. Even Frederick Douglass, when he you know, was a small child and when he was in Baltimore, his mistress who was a white female teacher, she began to teach him you know, words and how to read and write. And the slave owner came in and said, no, he cannot be taught how to read or write because it will make him unfit to be a slave. And that is a very relevant question today. Still, many educators are grappling with. Only thing now is, okay, I'm woke. I've been to Barnes & Noble, I've been to Amazon, I've read all the books, I've been in the study groups, I'm trying to now understand my privilege and all this and that. How can I now apply that to what makes a difference and that people think I'm actually authentic about this? So it brings up many questions to still reflect on today.
2: Shannon, can I jump in here again? Um, Marcus just said something that uh, triggered more questions. Um, One, I appreciate you putting the present crisis among African-Americans, especially in this much longer historical context. I had not thought of it in that way, even though I'm familiar with some of the things that you've just discussed. Uh, Second, you mentioned uh, critical race theory. Now, in my family, which is, uh, for the most part, quite conservative, we have arguments about this and they they complain and they wring their hands and pull their hair and they're worried to death about uh, critical race theory being taught in the schools. And I tell every one of them that it is not being taught, certainly not in the, uh, the public schools, uh, we don't teach it. Uh, uh, to me, CRT is something that's discussed in graduate school and the graduate cubicles and among teachers or professors. I don't see it actually being taught, and there seems to be a great deal of anxiety in the country uh, about this. Have you encountered any, uh, anything concerning CRT with administration or with parents or with students?
1: Well, well I would say that um, from my experience with CRT, I haven't um, come across a lot of battles and issues with it um, in the spaces that I've been. In the school system that i've been a part of um i do know that there's definitely a, a a large battle uh across the country in terms of local school districts allowing it to be taught in school districts not allowing it to be taught and i'm sure there are there are um, efforts to try to still find ways to to teach certain things but one of the things that i would suggest us really examine is how we you what what we what we are even talking about when we say critical race theory because I realized that critical race theory has become this catch all phrase to include a lot of things which it really did it really doesn't represent or what it wasn't initially supposed to represent and so critical race theory came about in the 60s from what I understand Mm -hmm. Kimberly Crenshaw Derek Bell it's an, you know, in the legal field, especially in higher education. And for what I understand, it was to call into um, reflecting and examining and understanding why these systemic inequities as it pertains to um, race, racism, and why do these structures still persist? Even though there's been the marches, the rallies, and all these efforts to try to, to get rid of it, why does it still exist? Um, and different notions are c- come into play like intersectionality and how we can b- more broaden that conversation. And so critical race theory it depends on how you teach it. It really does. I think that critical race theory is something that I think a lot of uh, a lot of individuals might be a little bit uncomfortable because it might uh, foster some hate and anger you know and uh, that might not, necessarily uh, it might create more havoc and more turmoil um, than a more smooth um, route. Um, but I think there's even research that supports those who go those who confront the past and those who are, who, who look at the past and, and, and look at it with more complexity, there's it could benefit your your psychological well-being. And so what I would suggest is when we talk about looking at history to not just speak about victimization, but speak about the resistance, to speak about the agency, to speak about you know uh, the different identities and to speak about the the the, the 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 debates and the differing points of view. You know, once again as historians, and it, it complexity is awesome, nuance is great, um, but when it comes to critical race theory, some are are taking critical race theory and and make lumping that with black history, and it's not necessarily the same thing. Right. Um, and so uh, there's a lot to be said about it, um, and I won't belabor too long on it because I, I don't want time to get away, but. Um, Critical race, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that can be said, and it doesn't have to necessarily be a contentious issue that is being made to be. But I also am a, am a proponent of not romanticizing or polarizing, but humanizing the story. So I think it's always healthy to look at history and say, how can this bring us together together? How can this connect us? How can we have that historical empathy for each other? How can we, you know, learn from what each other had to go through? And if I think we look at it from that lens, we'll be okay. Well,
2: yeah. this controversy over critical race theory has not changed my teaching, but it has made me uh, reconsider the amount of time I spend on the various topics. So if when I teach the second half of U.S. history, for instance, I'll talk about Jim Crow, I'll talk about Reconstruction. Uh, We talk about lynching. Uh, I'll spend a couple of weeks talking about civil rights movement. Uh, That always seemed to me to be uh, reasonable. And uh, uh, yet now with the critical race theory argument going on, I ask myself, should I change the way I teach this? Should I I spend more time? Should I spend less time? So in other words, this just made me be a little more self-critical about how I go about it. But I can't say... To this moment that has changed the way i teach um racial history in the united states
0: i heard this um, this uh, african-american scholar at the last aha meeting he it's just a one-line quote that he gave but i thought it was so powerful <laughs> and i thought it contextualized this pretty well he, he basically said well the black experience is not a theory Yeah. so i think that's a nice one-line sentence to give a guiding principle like it's not you History is not a theory. Experience Thanks. is not a Thanks, theory. Thanks, and
2: I'm going to remember that.
0: Yeah, I think it's really good. I, get, I run that through my mind all the time. It's not a, a theory. It's, it's, it's something we have to, to It's history. We have to talk about it um, in that regard. We have just a couple of minutes left. So, Marcus, I want to give you the chance here, uh, put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, okay. All these crises that are uh, facing history teachers and teachers in general in, in America at the moment, um I'm gonna ask you this is going to be really tough for you I'm putting you on the spot for real three things if you were king of the world and you were addressing you know this issue uh, just quickly what do you what would you say are um, the top three things that you'd recommend to making um, to easing this these crises?
1: So you're speaking about the crises you spoke about, just in the school systems in general.
0: Yeah, in the in the in the K twelve systems. Yeah. Wow,
1: that's, that that is a, a fully loaded question. I would say <laughs> you can um, take it
0: any way you want to. Any any Sure. Anywhere sure, you
1: want sure. I think that is. I think it's what what has to become central is is mental health and the well being of all parties who are involved. That has got to be central. That can't be secondary. Testing can't be valued over it. Uh, scores, graduation rates, even that is. There's got to be a shift in terms of well wellness and 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 what it is to be able to support those who need the support. Um, I would always. I would also say. I think teachers and educators also have a a job to do as well. So I'm not trying to let them off the hook. Um, I think that it's important for them to take their own well-being into their own hands. Meaning, when we talk about all of this stuff, you know, we can't give from an empty cup. We, you know, we can't give if we're depleted and if we have nothing left. So it's also incumbent upon educators to really stop long enough and to check in with themselves to see is, is what I'm doing sustainable, is what I'm doing healthy, is what I'm doing something that, um, you know, is is gonna enable me to, to, to be the best version of myself. And I think that policy, you know, policy also definitely impacts things. Um, in terms of uh, being able to adjust the schedule for educators or policy in terms of curriculum and what is taught and how it's taught. Um, So I think those are things that I would say right off the top of my head uh, with that being just a a complicated, um, multifaceted question. Um, That's what I would say.
0: Well, Marcus Nix, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, thanks a lot.
1: Thanks, Thanks,
2: Mark.
0: Just finished talking to Marcus Nick Steve I was curious um, about what you thought about his uh his, our conversation I was really struck myself with his uh historicism of school violence particularly in reconstruction uh in the reconstruction period that really was interesting to me uh what what do you think about it what were your thoughts
2: Well, I agree that his ability to put uh, this violence in a much broader historical context, especially racial violence, uh, I had not thought about it in those terms before. And uh, that's something that's going to require more thought. Um, My initial reaction uh, to Marcus uh, was sadness that such an articulate, capable person is leaving the profession. And I know that he mentioned in general terms, the changing political climate in this country, uh, the turmoil in uh, the racial climate in the country, that changes seem to be coming uh, quicker than before. And not all these changes are positive. So I was hoping that uh, maybe in the future, if we get a chance, uh, we could talk to Marcus again to see Uh, maybe to question him on the details specific details politics and race uh controversies like the 1619 project and so on and uh and maybe even get to talk to him about what he's doing now but again the, the sort of overriding impression that i have is that the profession is losing a very capable young man who is uh uh, who has apparently reached the point in his life where he's decided that teaching is, uh, is no longer either fulfilling um, or perhaps it's become so troublesome with politics and race that he's going to find another path. Well, it's interesting you say that. You say losing,
0: but, uh, of course, we didn't really get a chance to talk about what he's doing now. And, and I agree. I think it'd be awesome if Marcus could come back on and we could talk about it. Um, how he's responding uh, to this but in a way because I know he started his own corporation to educate in a to to teach to talk about history but in a non I guess traditional way Uh, and I'm wondering if this he's not maybe creating a new kind of model or if there's another sort of addition here that might be Um, we could consider
2: i would certainly i would welcome that
0: well i'm very concerned too about uh, what you say because i know my own kids they love their teachers and their teachers have gotten them through covid and a lot of other things so when we do lose from the institution it's incredibly troubling and but on the other hand too there might be for For some, there might be openings, shall we say, that I think could be interesting
1: to explore.
2: Right. I mean, even today, this morning, uh, before we began this chat, uh, the Supreme Court ruled uh, on Roe v. Wade. Uh, That's going to send shockwaves across this country. Um, I don't know how, I don't know what the impact will be within higher education, but it's certainly going to have a a dramatic uh, political impact in the country. And I'm just curious if these type of political and societal shocks are the, uh, are the impetus for someone like Marcus to say there has to be another way. There has to be another way to talk about history. There has to be a different forum, perhaps even a different audience. So these are questions I think that we could uh, pursue if we get a chance to speak with Marcus again. I think we should.
0: And uh, let's invite him back and see if we could do... a. Uh, uh... A part two of Marcus Snakes.